Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. So, what is Matan criticism? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a hadith comprises of two dimensions. The first is its text, and the second is its chain of transmission. The chain of transmission is known as the Sanad, through which we analyze its authenticity insofar as its transmission is concerned. But the text is known as Matan. The text is known as the Matan. So... One of the modern criticisms against the enterprise of hadith and its method of evaluation is that hadith scholars classically have been so fixated, have been so focused on evaluating hadith based on their chains of transmission, that they gave no importance to its text. So to give an example, they argue that a hadith, so long as the narrators are reliable, regardless of what the hadith says, speaks about any inherent contradictions, conflict with other more stronger reports, these critics argue that scholars of hadith would just accept them without giving them any um any without any regard to absurdities found in the text but this criticism is unfounded for a number of reasons and it's a very lengthy discussion which scholars have been writing on ever since uh, western critics have started um, criticizing hadith for this reasons people from as early as Mustafa Sibai, Abdurrahman al-Muallimi, and recently Dr. Jonathan Brown, they all have written on the subject. I myself wrote a short piece on it as well. The reason why this is unfounded is because, let's take a step back. And when we say a text, a matan, a hadith, has a problem, what are we saying? We're saying one of two things. Number one, we're saying that this hadith has been transmitted by the to, uh, from the Prophet ﷺ accurately, hence the mistake is from the Prophet ﷺ himself. Alternatively, we're saying, no, there's a problem in the text because somebody in this chain, they made a mistake that we now need to identify. So when we say there is a problem in the matan, it's either we're putting this uh, on the Prophet ﷺ, or we're saying it's a fault from one of the narrators. Well, as Muslims, we believe that the Prophet was infallible, hence he could have not said something that was um, either incoherent, in conflict, absurd, etc. So we know for a fact that whatever textual criticism or whatever flaw we find in the text definitely traces its roots back to a flaw in the chain of transmission. So from that perspective, by focusing on the chain of transmission, you are directly focusing on the text because the flaw in the text comes from the chain of transmission. Furthermore, if you look at the conditions of authenticity, two of the conditions are it should be free of anomaly and it should be free of any hidden defects. And both of these criteria 
are not only related to the chain of transmission, they also relate to the text as well. That are there any anomalies in this text? Does this text conf conflict with other reports? And based on that conflict or inherent inconsistency, we can declare and deem the hadith weak despite the reliability of the transmitter transmitters. Okay, that's, what, that's just a general point. But in terms of the practice of the scholars, from the era of the Indians all the way through the modern era, you will find countless examples of scholars who would criticize hadiths in their text, although they would do it in a very subtle fashion. Now, just to give a very quick recap on the development of hadith studies, we can kind of divide the history of hadiths into two major phases the first 500 years and then the second 500 years the first 500 is known as the era of the early scholars the mutaqaddimun and the second 500 and onwards is known as the mutaakhirun the latter day scholars if you study the early scholars like Imam al-Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Ibn Hibban, Ibn Khuzayma, um, Abu Hatim al-Razi, these early scholars, they engaged in metan criticism, but the way they did it was very subtle. The way they did it is very subtle. Meaning that if you study, for instance, Imam al-Bukhari's At-Tariq al-Kabir, you'll find numerous examples where Imam al-Bukhari, he would say that this hadith is problematic because it makes no sense. There's one hadith that talks about the Prophet ﷺ appointing his khulafa, his successors. And he says this hadith is incorrect because he never appointed any successors. Or that it talks about hadith, it talks about coins that will be minted. And then he says, wait, this is something that is unheard of in the time of the Prophet. ﷺ. So he does point out uh, inconsistencies and problems, but he does it in a very subtle fashion. Now the question is, why did Imam al-Bukhari do it so subtly? Why did others in his time do it so subtly? Dr. Jonathan Brown argues that the reason for that is because of the feud that was taking place between the scholars of hadith and the rationalists, the Mu'tazila. If you study their debates, their arguments, it has a lot to do with the role of reason in evaluating the status of scripture. So now, if the scholars of hadith would openly critique the matan openly, then that would be accepting the argument of the Mu'tazila. They do critique the matan, but they did it in a way very subtly so that it doesn't appear to their opponents that they are accepting the argument. Because there was definitely a, an entire methodology uh, with which they would critique the matan. However, when you fast forward to the second uh, phase, the mutaakhirun, the Latter-day Scholars, they openly critique mutun texts based solely on the matan. So for instance, the famous student of Ibn Taymiyyah, the 8th century scholar from Damascus, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he actually authored an entire book entitled Al-Manaw Al-Muif, where the purpose is how can you identify forgeries merely based on their content without even looking at his chain of transmission. So uh, in summary, to say that scholars of hadith were unmindful of the text or they did not engage in metan criticism is unfounded. And historically and theoretically, meaning practically they've engaged in it, and theoretically they talk about it. And uh, Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi himself, he mentions 
that one of the criteria of accepting a hadith is that it does not um, contain anything impossible or problematic. Impossible or problematic. Now, what does that mean exactly? So something impossible. Okay, just to give some background, um, under the statement of uh, of Khatib al-Baghdadi that anything impossible, um, uh, uh, this I believe it was um, Abdul Aziz al-Ghumari, if not um, another one of them, uh, a very famous scholar from Morocco. Um, he um, argues that when he says something impossible, basically when it is an inherently impossible that it wouldn't ever describe something that could not be like a circle square or something of that sort. When you find something inherently impossible, you will not uh, accept that hadith. So again, the point here isn't what he's mentioning, but the idea that he's willing to say that we will critique hadiths, not looking at his chain of transmission, but looking at his content. Okay, and, and kind of going back to something you had mentioned earlier, as you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but you mentioned it again, the Mu'tazilites, what exact, on what basis exactly did they, uh, did they reject the hadith? And why were, why were the, 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 the Mu'taqaddimun so hesitant to... This is a very... Um, it, it kind of it, it goes back to the first, second, third centuries of uh, the Islamic calendar because... The, the, the first of all, there was there were a number of camps theologically in terms of jurisprudence. You had different uh, scholastic groups, right? So in terms of theology, you had the Ahlul Hadith, the more what we know now as the Atharis, and then you had more people who were in between, later in uh, labeled the uh, Kullabis. Then you had people who were more um, excessively involved in uh, rationalist thinking, such as the Mu'tazila, they, the Mu'tazila and the scholars of Hadith, Ahlul Hadith, have had very uh, intense debates very early on based on the role of reason in relation to scripture. So you'll find early Mu'tazila debating with the scholars of Hadith and the scholars of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah in general based on the role of uh, reason. So for instance, Qadi Abdul Jabbar, when he talks about the sources of knowledge, he places number one at the top of the list, he places the usage of reasoning. Whereas other scholars, scholars of hadith in particular, they would say there's no scope of using your reason in the face of divine revelation because divine revelation addresses something beyond the scope of the intellect. So you had this more academic discussion, but then there was a lot of political feuds between them, and in particular reference to the Quranic Inquisition, known as the Mihna. The Mihna was around the issue of the createdness of the Quran, Khalqul Quran, and how the Mu'tazila, uh, by influencing the Abbasids, they caused this turmoil throughout the Muslim world where people were forced to, um, to, uh, to, to espouse belief in the createdness of the Qur'an, that the Qur'an is something created. And now that's a theological issue which may seem uh, irrelevant today, but at that time it was something very important. And because of Mu'tazili influence, the, the Khulafa, the Caliphs, the Abbasid Caliphs, 
would enforce and make it necessary for these scholars to publicly um, uh, espouse this belief. And whoever didn't, they were whipped and lashed. For instance, um, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he went through this, um, uh, he went through the mihna, the trial, where he was tortured and he was uh, persecuted because he refused to accept that belief. I mean, these are just a few reasons why the Mu'tazila and the scholars of hadith were at loggerheads. They were debating with each other constantly. But in reference to why the early scholars of hadith um, were very subtle in their application of reason in um, critiquing hadith was because they had they definitely they were they weren't blind gullible storytellers who were unaware of any inherent flaws in the hadith but for them they believed that the the role that reason played was very limited so if they openly used reason to critique a hadith it would appear to their opponents that they're accepting the argument although in reality they're not it's only in certain circumstances where there is a problem rationally or um, some inconsistency, but it's coupled with some isnad flaw that now they would critique the hadiths. So now, in that vein, if they were to openly just critique a hadith based on you know reason, inconsistency, conflict with other narrations, it would be fodder for the Mu'tazila to say, wait, aren't you criti criticizing us for uh, using reason? But the muhaddithun would not even accept that to begin with. I hope that kind of shed some light on why they were subtle in their matan criticism. It does in a sense, and I, and I want to ask a question which will hopefully lead to a, a larger question. But if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that if there is a hadith whose chain is authentic and its text is impossible or... or, or difficult to reconcile in terms of its you know uh, intellectually then there's not an issue with the matan itself but there's an issue with when i say matan it's not an issue at the level of the prophet it's an issue with the chain so meaning yes. that basically the chain just isn't authentic enough because yes exactly so if there is um, something problematic with it, Imam al-Bukhari would say this hadith makes no sense because X, Y, and Z. The Prophet ﷺ never would have said this, or this goes against other authentic reports, or this makes no sense for the time of the Prophet ﷺ. He would say that, but shortly thereafter he would give a isnad reasoning for it, because now you have to justify it. Okay, this hadith is problematic. Where did this problem stem from? And then he would say that, okay, such and such narrator, tafarradabihi. He is alone in transmitting it. Perhaps that's where the flood crept in. Okay, so so if there is one narration that is completely all right, and it has the same exact number of narrators, and the same type of narrators, and in fact, the, th the same narrators, and there's another hadith that has the same narrators as well but the the the, the content the, the the text of the hadith itself is a little bit problematic um what does that mean exactly does that mean that the other hadith also needs to be reevaluated no, not, not at all because it's remember when a person says a hadith is sahih they're saying that it's authentic with a margin of error so it's possible that the first hadith 
is authentic. There's no reason to doubt it. But the second hadith, it's, although it's by the same transmitters, it's possible that they made a mistake. They erred in this transmission, and that margin of error is now what you're going to focus on. So it's possible you'll have two, chain, two texts with the exact same chains, and a scholar of hadith will say, this is problematic, and that's not. And they'll give the reasoning for it, because just because this hadith, uh, the isnad is sahih, doesn't mean they're saying that it doesn't lend itself to the possibility of being flawed. Okay, and so I guess... On that same note, is is science a um, a valid criterion to assess the authenticity of a hadith? And what I mean by this is, if there is a hadith who which is authentic in terms of his chain, but it has a you know a, a matan that is to us at least seems scientifically inaccurate. What are the implications of such a hadith? I mean. Surely we don't throw the baby out with the bath water and dismiss all hadith. Nor do we have to maybe uh, assess the chain more, perhaps uh, like what you were saying earlier. Do we have to redefine fundamental understandings of the Prophet's knowledge? Or do we just simply say we can't understand this hadith? Because um, if, we're, if, we're, if we're being honest with ourselves, this hadith, the, the chain is fine. And all other narr- all other chains that have these same narrators are fine. So we have this chain, and it's problematic. But we're just not going to dwell dwell too much into it. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, obviously because the science advances. So what you know, uh, what scholars in the twelfth century understood about something, our understanding about it today might not be the same. Uh, so on that note, I mean, how exactly do we address these issues? Okay, so. For anyone who may be interested in reading on the subject, uh, from my basic reading, the most exhaustive treatment of this subject was a a PhD dissertation from Jordan. Uh, The author, his name is um, Abu Sara Jamil Farid, and the dissertation is entitled أَثَرُ الْعِلْمِ التَّجْرِيبِ فِي كَشْفِ نَقْدِ الْحَدِيثِ النَّبَوِي Basically, he explores the usage of science um, in critiquing and analyzing hadith. There's a lot to discuss here. Number one, we have to um, understand what are we using science for? Okay, first is, what do we mean by science? Are we talking about any theory, um, something that's a fact, something that's been like a hypothesis that's been tried, a certain experiments? that have been tested. So that's the first thing that we need to um, discuss. Second thing is, once we have uh, determined what type of science is useful, when is science not useful, we have to know that one is to weaken a hadith because it contradicts science, but the opposite is also possible, where a person would want to authenticate a hadith because it corresponds to science. And there has been a number of uh, modern scholars who have done this, that they would say, look, this hadith um, corresponds to what we now know of science, and uh, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they could not have known it, hence it is reliable. One scholar who does this very frequently is Ahmad al-Siddiq al-Ghumari in his Al-Mudawi. He does this very frequently, where he would say, this hadith is authentic and reliable because its content uh, um, contains information that could have not been known by the Prophet and, and sorry, I just want to interrupt uh, for for a moment. I mean, do we ever have any instances where it's a um, 
a, a, a hadith that's categorized as weak, and yet the content of it at the time, even to the people who were analyzing, that dismissed it because scientifically, I mean, let alone the the chain, but also the the text of it didn't make sense to their uh, to them at the time. But now we understand that scientifically, this is actually um, very impressive that that the Prophet could have known about this, and so they start to they say that this this hadith is valid. So do they have to? What do they? What does that mean exactly? Does it mean that? They reopen the, the 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 analysis of that chain and start to you know um, validate certain uh, narrators and then if that means what if those narrators are present in other hadith what exactly are the implications of that? Okay, first of all, we have to remember, and I I need to drive this point home that anytime someone says a chain of transmission is sahih, authentic, or daif weak, it does not mean they're giving a definitive ruling. They're saying, for the most part, based on our um, attempt and effort, this hadith is reliable with a margin of error. So if in one instance we say that these narrators made a mistake, it does not mean that in every other scenario these same narrators had made a mistake. They can be specific to this particular hadith, number one. Number two, in reference to your question, the... Authentication of hadith because of its correspondence to reality is something that is extremely rare classically. It's just in the modern era, some scholars have done it. Like I said, Ahmad Sadiq al-Ghumari uses it quite frequently, but there isn't much uh, precedence for it. Yes, here and there you'll find someone say regarding an authentic hadith that, wait, look, this hadith, I've tried it and tested it, and it is reliable. But in terms of a weak hadith, sometimes they would say it's been tested, but they wouldn't use that as a foundation for authentication. Okay. Now, um, I mean, based... the, more the more important scenario is the situation where a hadith um, conflicts with what we know from science, right? Yes. Uh, a proponent of using science for critiquing hadith today, um, a contemporary scholar, is Yus uh, Shifi Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Um, he emphasizes this point uh, quite a bit, where he says it's important for us to use the, the scientific knowledge that we have today in re-evaluating hadith. But that's a very gen general, um, vague statement. You'd have to be very specific, because, like I said, Number one, we have to determine what we mean by science, right? Is it a fact? Is it just a, a theory? Is it something that is, at least in Usuli terms, it's something definitive or something probable? So that's the first thing we need to determine. And the second thing is, yes, once we have established that a, um, the, the information that we have from science is uh, reliable, it's um, definitive, or even if it's not definitive, it's extremely compelling, that is sufficient reason for us now not to dismiss the hadith, but not now to go back and revisit potential errors. Okay. So, I, I mean, do, do Orientalists ever, ever point this out? Not Orientalists, perhaps... Islamophobes or people who are against the Islamic intellectual tradition, do they ever point out the, the like the potential um, issues that arise from this? Because on the one hand, there is you know someone is saying that okay you know demonstrate to me that the prophet is 
you know, a, a truly a prophet. And so we cite all the hadith and, you know, all the verses of the Quran that, that kind of are a testament to that. And yet when we use the same methodology and there are other hadith that kind of don't necessarily demonstrate this, we kind of say, look, there's probably um, a, a deeper issue with, with the chain. And I mean, of course, you can look again at the chain and again at the chain and again at the chain and maybe someone somewhere was wrong. But what happens in those cases where the chain really is as sound as it could possibly be? I mean, it seems like we don't ever let the ever let it get to the prophet in a way that forces people to radically reconsider the nature of, you know, the prophet's knowledge. Well, we well, don't get me wrong, there are times where we do go back and say this is from the prophet sallam and he said it in his capacity as a human being and maybe he erred in his judgment, right? With all due respect, obviously, and that's in a limited capacity. We do say that. It's not that we ever um, we ever shy away from that. Early scholars have mentioned, and there's that famous example of the cross-pollination, where the Prophet ﷺ said something, and it turned out not to be accurate. And he himself acknowledged that, look, when you're going to take matters of the world from me, know that it's possible for me to err. But when you take matters of the religion from me, there's going to be no error over there. So yeah, this is something that we speak about. But overall, we have to remember, as Muslims, we believe the Messenger of Allah to be al-Sadiq al-Ameen, the truthful and the trustworthy. We believe him to be a recipient of revelation. So that really does influence the way we interact with the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, and that's only natural. And like again, we established that from the Quran. But does that mean that just because we find it problematic, immediately we try to brush it off from the Prophet ﷺ? No. If you look at those same hadith that Orientalists or Western critics or what have you, they point out as flaws in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, who narrated them? It was the muhaddithun, they narrated them. And they've reconciled it. Like, for instance, the marriage with Aisha, radiallahu anha, you don't see them saying, oh, okay, now let's completely negate the hadith. No, we accept it. And now we're going to try to understand it in light of an infallible messenger of Allah who speaks the truth and who's trustworthy and is the highest standard of morality. Okay. Um, kind of moving on from this topic, what... What in I know I think you've written uh, quite extensively on manuscript studies in hadith. Could you give us a, a brief uh, background in the study of, of hadith manuscripts um, as from as early as possible and with a, with the more specific focus to to discoveries being made today? I mean, uh, by no stretch of the imagination am I an expert in um, hadith manuscripts or manuscripts in general. I just happen to have some exposure to them and have read a few, but um, if your question is with regards to manuscript studies in the modern age and how uh, new manuscripts are being unearthed constantly, well, yeah, that's a reality. And uh, just in reference to Sahih al-Bukhari, for instance, um, I, one of my students um, from Qalam Institute, he just brought me this uh, facsimile edition of uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, which is from the recension of Abu Dhar al-Harawi, one of the transmitters of Sahih al-Bukhari, it is the most complete and earliest manuscript of Sahih al-Bukhari. So now, this was just discovered recently. It just one uh, particular person, I believe his name is Abdul Aziz An-Jaqar, uh, um, an, an or if, I, I hope I'm not saying his name wrong. Uh, he... Um, 
located it in the Suleimaniya library, the Maktab of uh, Murad Mullah, he found uh, that manuscript and it was just recently discovered. And it's such a gem. It kind of like allows us to have uh, access to one of the earliest. It was a, a manuscript written uh, around the year 550 um, of the Hijri calendar. So, yeah, we're constantly unearthing manuscripts. Uh, recently, also, the Qabisi manuscript one of the transmitters of Sahih al-Bukhari as well, his manuscript was discovered and that kind of like shook the academic Muslim world in terms of their understanding of the Sahih and manuscripts in general, especially recently now that we're living in a globalized village, it's so much easier for people to access manuscripts. People are making that the focus of their uh, dissertations. So yeah, there's a lot going on uh, under manuscript studies. But classically, um, it's phenomenal if you see the way the scholars of hadith would uh, deal with uh, manuscripts of hadith, how they ensured that these uh, manuscripts were not tampered with, they were preserved, um, they ensured that they were in the right hands, they wouldn't accept a, a person transmitting from a manuscript unless they had a chain of transmission. So yeah, the, the field of uh, manuscript study is very, uh, very general and very broad. But, um, yeah, uh, these are just some basic things that maybe someone can consider. Okay. And for the listeners who are probably, you know, wondering why this, this, um, this, this subject is going on for such a long time, it's because it's a very important subject. And um, I'm sure the Mufti would agree with me when I say something like Hadith studies kind of forms the meat of all of Islamic studies because of how important it is and how how important of a resource it is for our understanding of Islam and of the life of the Prophet. Um, but kind of, you know, so we can finish up this podcast with maybe just a couple of questions. And I guess the, this is, these are more, you know, uh, you, can, you can answer, perhaps there's not real strong history aspect related to these questions, but do you trust oral transmission of knowledge in general? Or is there something specific about the companions and the early hadith transmitters which imbues you with confidence in regard to the reliability of oral transmission? Well, personally, do I have confidence in oral transmission? Well, it depends on the person, right? So recently, uh, Sheikh Saeed Kamali from Morocco, he visited us here in Texas. He was in Houston delivering uh, a few classes on the Mu'atta. And... This is someone I've met in person, and the way he just quotes hadith off memory with the chains of transmission, the way he quotes couplets of poetry, pages upon pages, is somewhat. So it just gives me confidence that whatever he's saying, I trust what he says from his memory more than what I perhaps would have written myself. So there are instances where people, uh, if you check online, Sheikh Hassan Didu, if you see the way when people ask him questions, he's in Saudi right now, Mauritanian scholar, if somebody asks him a question, he will quote the hadith as though he's looking at it right in front of himself. It's right in front of him. So um, do I accept oral transmission if it's from qualified uh, people with phenomenal memories such as these scholars? Definitely. Uh, if it's from someone like myself or some other random person who doesn't have good memory or someone who hasn't been using their memory, then obviously we're going to have more doubt. And that kind of hopefully answers your question about the companions. 
what I see in someone like Hassan Didu or uh, Sheikh Hassan Didu or Sheikh uh, Saeed Kamali or any other scholar with phenomenal memory, this is just a fraction of what's earlier muhaddithun like Imam al-Bukhari and others or even before them like Abu Huraira had in terms of their memory because that was their um, lifestyle. Everything was memorized. Everything was from memory. So the likelihood of them erring in their transmission was much slimmer. So do I have confidence in oral transmission in the modern era? Um, yeah, it depends on the particular individual. But in the past, definitely much more so because that was something that they wholeheartedly embraced and was their primary means of preserving knowledge. Okay, and are there any examples of any, um, any, any sayings of the companions in which they said, I don't remember? And does this yeah, affect... There, there's a few examples where... Uh, uh, somebody comes to him and says, um, I have a question. And he responds by saying, look, Kabirna, uh, we've uh, gone old, we've aged, and we've forgotten. So why don't you go to some of my students and ask them, such as Al-Hassan uh, Al-Basri or someone else. So this is one example of where somebody uh, forgot. But the thing here is important to note is he acknowledged and confessed that his memory is starting to get weak because he's getting older. So he says, listen, right now my memory is poor. Go to one of my students. He acknowledged it. But there were other instances where a Sahabi may have made a mistake or may have said something wrong. Perhaps there was a lapse in memory. That's perfectly fine. That's why you have corroboration and you have others who would um, either correct them or, or, you know, kind of shed light on where they made a mistake. Understood. And in your estimation, these individual um, anecdotes and examples where companions or where other companions in kind of criticizing one companion over the reliability of their transmission of what the Prophet said, inciting some aspect of their memory, that doesn't take away from the companions as a whole having very phenomenal memory. Oh, not only does it not take away from the companions as a whole, it doesn't even take away from that particular companion either. So if Aisha criticized Abu Huraira twice or thrice, well, that shows from the roughly, well, 3,000 hadith he narrates, depending on the number that we take, let's say 3,000 hadith that he narrates, if he's only been corrected three times, it actually speaks volumes to the amount that he didn't make a mistake on. Okay, and I, I think a lot of the listeners might might be a bit skeptical in the in in the some of the memories of some of the people. But I remember one of my teachers saying, "I don't know if anyone any listeners have actually seen any of these texts." I mean, they they have a list of narrators and they have the actual text, and there's many pages and there's many volumes and um, there's many books, but. There are people in a lot of these traditional madaris and, and mufti, I'm sure you can uh, agree, and perhaps you have some of your own stories, but they, um, they actually memorized these entire books along with the narrators inside these books. So, I mean, even in our present day, and I remember my teacher explicitly saying this, even in our present day, you might find people like you were saying, Sheikh, that, that have this amazing memory. And of course, you can say, you know, these are obviously like the select few, uh, there's a few of them in this generation. There's probably a few of them in every generation. It's it's uh, you know it's kind of a stretch to say that everybody in earlier generations was like this. But um, of course, I mean, we can't really know something like that. We have to have a, 
a detailed study about that, but it truly is interesting and in the memories of um, the the memory of some people. Um, more... Well, the thing, but the thing, what I would add to that is no, it's not far fetched that people in the past could have been uh, there could have been many more than there are today. Because that's what they would do. So yes, it is possible that we have a select few today only, but back then that just happened to be the majority of people. Because why was it that the select few? So for instance, Sheikh Sheikh Sirajuddin, I believe, is the teacher Sirajuddin Al Halabi, the teacher of Sheikh uh, Awama. He memorized over a hundred thousand hadiths, and many of them with their chains of transmission. He memorized the six uh, major collections. He passed away, what, in the year 2000 or 2001, just recently. just hasn't even been 20 years. But he memorized over 100,000 hadith, uh, the six major collections, and a number of other works. So now, is he just an exception? Yes, he's an exception today. But what he did, or the lifestyle that he lived in order to accomplish that, was a staple in the life of the scholars of the past. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's just exceptional. It's, I mean, it's something that was more common before. And the other thing we have to acknowledge is, look, we're saying that the companions in general, they had phenomenal memories, but how many hadith did each companion narrate? If you look at that, look, this is something very important I think I need to emphasize. If you look at the seven major transmitters of hadith, the seven major transmitters of hadith from Abu Huraira, Aisha, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Jabir, uh, Anas, Sa'id, Sa'id Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And if you look at these Sahaba who narrated so much, so Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, for instance, although it's commonly said he narrated 5,000, a more accurate number would be roughly 2,000 to 3,000. Let's say he narrated 3,000 hadiths. That's still 3,000 hadiths. If you look at Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she narrated roughly 2,000 hadith. Abdullah ibn Umar, he's narrating 2,000 hadith. So 2,000 hadith to narrate and not make a mistake isn't such a difficult accomplishment. Again, this is not to take away from their virtue, but Sahih al-Bukhari itself contains roughly seven to 8,000 hadith. Just one compilation, which people, till this day, I know people, personally I know people who have memorized the entirety of Sahih al-Bukhari, which it's not a norm today, but back then to memorize without making mistakes two to three thousand hadith, how could that be seen as something far-fetched? It's kind of beyond me. Thank you. And when we're talking about using hadith uh, to write history, uh, would you would you say that you, hadith constitute reliable sources of information? I mean, we were kind of having um, a discussion earlier on about how some aspects of a hadith, of accepting hadith, depends on your worldview. And there might be some spiritual, theological, you know, religious element which compels you to accept a hadith, but a historian may not share that same view. So I guess, in a sense, objectively speaking, how reliable are hadith um, for history? When we think about history, it's not... It's not black and white that either, look, ontologically speaking, it's black and white that, look, in the past, did someone like Imam al-Bukhari go to Baghdad and say, for instance, uh, was he tested about uh, over a hundred different chains of transmission? So that's an incident that happened in the past. Did it happen or did it not happen? It's yes or no in terms of our external reality. But historically speaking, it's not just a yes or no. There are different, there's a spectrum. It could have happened. 
It could have possibly happened from one to a hundred. It could have been 20% possible, 30% possible. So there's a difference between historical truth, historical reality and ontological reality, right? Um, that bearing that in mind is really useful when we think about hadith in that, look, it's not that it's either that it happened or it didn't happen. It can be different grades that there's 80% chance that it happened, 70% chance that it happened, depending on the authenticity, the corroboration, the content, uh, what have you. Based on that, it will reach a certain level of historical reality. And based on the level that it reach, uh, reaches, I will apply it in particular areas, whether it's history, whether it's theology, whether it's law, whether it's, um, uh, I don't know, whether it's my day-to-day -day practices. So I feel it's, it's not so simple as do I use it, do I not use it? Rather, you have to ask, number one, what level of usage, what's the level of authenticity, and what area of usage will I use it? So now, as a historian, does it um, yield knowledge? Well, yes, it does, to a certain extent. Again, I'm not using al-ilm in the sense of tawatur uh, qata, but more like knowledge, as in does it give me some information about the past? Yes. And based on certain factors, it may give me, engender within me, more uh, certainty and in other cases it will engender within me less certainty and can you cite any western scholars who might have a different methodology when approaching the corpus of hadith um, and still find it to be a very reliable source of information about the life of the prophet i mean that's basically uh, apart from the revisionists and some extreme skeptics, a lot of people still accept certain hadiths, right? So even though Goldzier would reject majority of hadiths, it's not like he said there's not a single hadith. I mean, a number of Western scholars till this day, they would accept it, but very, very uh, scarcely. Again, that's their approach not only to Islam, at least today, it's not their approach to Islam, it's just their approach to historical sources in general. And... Um, is it because the field of hadith is not a robust system that they lack this confidence um, or they don't trust it? No, I mean, maybe they don't know it well enough. I mean, there are a number of qualified Western scholars who give a lot of weight to hadith, like Harold Motsky, for instance. He's a person who, yes, he may not have accepted every report. He had a very rigorous method through which the Isnad Kammatan kind of uh, analysis, which many people may be familiar with, through which he accepted many hadiths and he rejected many hadiths. But he's someone who was a qualified Western scholar who was um, accepted in uh, quote-unquote orientalist circles. I, I just don't feel that term is used much anymore. But in any case, it was used in those circles, yet he is um, accepting hadiths. So yeah, there are many. Harold Mosk is just one and a number of others. And like I said, recently, because of the efforts of people like Harold Motsky, um, even like Scott Lucas, Dr. Jonathan Brown, um, and others, people are Dr. Mustafa Al-Azami, Dr. Zubair Siddiqui, um, just to name a few in the Western world, uh, people, are, people have now developed more confidence in the hadith, be they Muslims or non-Muslims, be they historians or non-historians, Western critics or not. Okay, and there's two last questions, and I, I think we, we somewhat went over this earlier, but I should probably ask. Now, hadith methodology is, well, the methodology which critiques hadith and tells you whether they're authentic or not authentic, this is all man-made. I mean, this isn't like, a, like a, a set of principles came down from above and help us 
these are all man-made principles, and this is a man-made methodology. And there are people historically, and there are people who continue today, today uh, who, who remain skeptical about this. And so, our hadith, do, do, do people, do proponents of hadith, uh, uh, the reliability of hadith, and, you know, muhaddithin, do they, do they say that the hadith, according to the principles we developed, are absolutely for what the Prophet said? Or um, is it just an approximation? And I think you did answer this. You said that, and please correct me, you said that they say that there is always a margin of error. Now, I just wanted to ask if you wanted to speak a bit more about that because there are people who deny categorically all hadith. And so according to them, perhaps we cannot know and we don't accept this man-made methodology, so we're just going to stick with what we have. That's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, if, for example, you're kind of, you know, setting aside, like disregarding the methodology and disregarding hadith or disregarding certain hadith that might be okay according to the same accepted methodology, what really are you are you missing out on? I mean, how much of the Islamic knowledge, Islamic heritage are you missing out on when you deny hadith? So to answer that second question first, look, what heritage you're missing out on, it, somebody can safely say most of Islam as we know it today is based upon hadith either directly or indirectly. Most meaning a lot of it. So for someone to say that we reject hadith, Forget about abstract issues. We don't even know the number of units in the prayer, uh, which prayers to pray, except uh, some people argue there's some very vague references in the Quran. And that's why early on, scholars like Abdul Rahman ibn Mahdi would say, the hadith is always a commentary on the Quran. So yes, if a person rejects the entirety of the hadith corpus, there's not much left to that person's Islam because the Quran was never revealed in a vacuum. It was revealed in a lived experience. And that lived experience was the life of the Prophet And now, whether you accept the hadith methodology or not, you have to accept that it was revealed to a person who lived the Quran, who fleshed out the principles of the Quran. But now you would have to accept, ask yourself, if you don't accept the hadith methodology, okay, where on earth is this lived experience? Okay, you can say it's gone. Well, if it's gone, then you've just lost a large portion of your um, Islam. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, what was the first question? The first, yeah, I know it was, it was a lengthy question, but... Um... Considering the 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 hadith is a man-made um, uh, hadith sciences, oh, it's... Yes, yes, yes. So um, just I'll repeat one comment I made earlier on. Hafid al-Dhahabi says with regards to science of narrator criticism in particular, and this is applicable to all the different disciplines of hadith, that we do not claim isma, we do not claim infallibility, definitiveness. But what we do claim is this is the most accurate and the closest humanly possible effort at ascertaining the truth in the life of the Prophet So do we say that it is definitive with no margin of error? Absolutely not. Nobody's ever made that claim. But if you want to invent a competing um, theory or in competing structure, just make sure it is 
adequate, it's coherent, it's um, constructive, it actually has value. Don't just make some empty attempts. And if anybody wants to study an analysis uh, of the hadith methodology with other um, attempts, at least Western attempts at it, uh, Dr. Um, Iftikhar Zaman, in his study of uh, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas's um, hadith about the will, about uh, before you pass away, you can give one-third as wasiyah, you can bequeath one-third. Um, so regarding that hadith, he studies different approaches, like a number of Western uh, critics, how they approach this hadith, and then he studies the hadith methodology only to show that the hadith methodology is more convincing. So yes, are we saying that, yes, it, it's man-made. Um, can there be any other approach that's more authentic? We're not negating the possibility, but you know, as the Quran says, bring your proof if uh, you are truthful. Because you have to understand, the, this methodology was uh, brought into existence, was formulated by people who lived very close to the Prophet ﷺ, who lived with the companions, who uh, lived with these narrators whom they're critiquing. So if anybody would know these narrators better, uh, if anybody would know these narrators best, it would be these scholars. And I'll end with one point. Um, uh, uh, Anwar Shah al-Kashmiri, he mentions that, and interestingly, he talks about this in reference to the early scholars of hadith compared to the latter-day scholars of hadith. That the early scholars of hadith are like people who can see, and latter-day scholars of hadith are like blind men who need to use a walking stick. Basically, they are um, dependent upon what's written in the books about transmitters, whereas earlier scholars lived with these transmitters, so they knew much better and more accurately whether they were reliable or not. If that's in reference to them, then to a larger extent, if people want to talk about earlier narrators, whether they're reliable or not, I mean, if you want to compare my new methodology, which I invent from scratch, either some mathematical approach or some scientific approach or what have you, compared to someone like Imam Bukhari who lived with that narrator, who spent days with him to figure out whether he's reliable or not, I would rather go with Imam Bukhari's uh, approach, even though I would say, listen, uh, you, you're entitled to your opinion if that makes you any happier. And I mean, kind of on, on the same note, historically, what was the, the majority and what were the majority and minority views towards those individuals who denied hadith? So, um, there were varied views. Uh, Imam Jalaluddin al-Suyuti, in his uh, particular book, Miftah al-Jannah, he argues that anyone who rejects every single hadith and says that no hadith is reliable, he says that that person cannot be a Muslim because he's also re rejecting things which are axiomatic tenets, definitive tenets. So a person cannot remain a Muslim if they completely reject hadiths. But then you have... Oh, I'm sorry. Can you give an example like, of a um, um, uh, an axiomatic tenet? An axiomatic tenet, for instance, that Salatul Dhuhr is a prayer. There are five prayers a day. There are four units for Salatul These are axiomatic tenets. These are things which are known and they're transmitted from hadiths. Does that make sense? Yeah. If a person rejects it, you're rejecting something which is so fundamental, you can't really claim to be a Muslim anymore. Um, other people are a bit more uh, uh, a bit more lenient on this. 
um, for instance, Ibn Shihna, very famous Hanafi scholar, he says, قَدْ أَجْمَعَتِ الْأُمَّةِ He says, listen, if you reject the ahadith, you're not uh, out of the fold of Islam. Um, uh, some people take uh, are more specific that, no, he's referring to Khabar Wahid, more isolated transmission. But I feel, listen, I like the approach of someone like uh, Bakhit al-Muti'i, Sheikh Bakhit al-Muti'i from Egypt, a scholar from the 20th century. He says, look, if someone rejects a hadith or rejects hadith in general, you have to figure out why that person is rejecting the hadith. Does this person feel that I know this hadith is from the Prophet, yet I reject it because I find it unacceptable? Or is there some lingering doubt in their mind that compels them not to accept it from the Prophet to begin with? If that is the case, you should be very cautious in saying that that person is no longer a Muslim because it's not that they disagree or they have an issue with something from the Prophet. So I said, rather, it's they have some reason to doubt it being from the Prophet. Are they right? No. But there's a shubha, there's a doubt now because of which we should be very reserved in saying that that person is no longer a Muslim. Okay. Um, and so, again, when we talk about hadith denial, for example, there are certain people who may find authenticated hadith to not fit their worldview in the sense that you could say, for example, that there's a hadith and the wording of that hadith is problematic and I believe the Prophet wouldn't have ever said that. Though the the authentication process is, is you know, it's, it's valid, I believe that. And according to that process, this is an authentic hadith. But I'm going to reject it because I personally don't feel the Prophet said that. I don't think the Prophet would say something about I don't know. For example, if there's some problematic hadith about women or some problematic hadith about something else and they just reject it because, you know, it doesn't make sense to them. I mean, what really is the difference between that and later um, hadith scholars kind of reassessing um, chains of transmission when the text itself has something impossible, like you had mentioned earlier? The difference is very simple because one person is making an educated statement and the other is just looking for an excuse not to accept it. So a person, there's something said about gender issues or something said that doesn't uh, mesh well with the worldview and they say, I don't accept it. Well, although you're saying that you don't believe the Prophet Sallallahu said it, you need a reason for that. That's exactly what the scholars are doing. They're now revisiting it and they're giving a reason for which they are saying that we don't accept it from the Prophet. One is arbitrary reasoning and the other is, you know, well-grounded research, right? So they're two completely different uh, takes on the hadith. If you, Even those people who uh, revisit the hadith, it's not that just because they revisit the hadith we accept it from them, but at least they're making a scholarly effort of saying that, okay, this hadith is unacceptable for X, Y, and Z reason, and they'll give the reason. So now it's justified to an extent, at least the process, whereas people who arbitrarily say, I don't accept it, well, that's more of acting out of your whims as opposed to having an academic reason for not, um, you know, Accepting that hadith. So, on that same note, I mean, so basically, if you have a problem with the hadith, as long as you, you know, put some time and put some effort in creating a well-crafted argument for why you don't think that this is something the Prophet would have said, and even though the authentication process concluded that this is an authentic hadith, 
which likely goes back to the Prophet. Uh, I mean, are, is that fine? I mean, can you go ahead and... I mean, to, to say it's fine is a bit of a blanket statement. I would say that, look, because people today, they do have methods that they're using. We disagree with them. What I'm trying to say is that one is to use, to have a justified reason for why you reject it. I will respect that you've at least made an attempt. And now it's my responsibility to critique your attempt and say, listen, it's flawed for X, Y, and Z reason, right? But at least you put the effort inside of it, as opposed to someone arbitrarily just criticizing it. Now, you personally, what, what drove you to hadith sciences? I mean, you seem to have a, a passion and you do excel in this in this field, mashallah, like you are truly, I mean, perhaps amongst the younger generation of scholars in the United States, you're probably one of the experts in this field. And I mean, what, what drove you uh, to this field of study? And why do you find so much happiness in studying it? And why do you have so much confidence in it? Well, first and foremost, I'll be absolutely honest. Literally, um, in comparison to the scholars that I know, many scholars that I've never met, I'm literally not even a drop in the ocean, right? Uh, scholars such as like Dr. Sharif Hatim Aouni, Sheikh Muhammad Awama, Sheikh Saeed Kamali, uh, Sheikh Tariq Awadullah, uh, like, you know, these are true scholars. I just happen to have some interest in the field. So to answer your question in particular reference to my interest in the field, um, it's because... It actually started while I was doing my Alamiya program in South Africa. Our Sheikh al-Hadith, our lead teacher of Hadith in the final year, his name is Mulana Fadlur Rahman al-A'lami. He um, very passionate in Hadith, and he has this unique ability of, you know, it's very contagious. He's able to pass on that passion to his students. Anyone who studied with him, in some capacity, leave that class with a passion in Hadith. So I would say that my interest was sparked then. And then, obviously, there were some uh, local teachers as well who were students of Sheikh Muhammad Awama who were there, and I had the opportunity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved them, I had the opportunity of going and study with them, and that kind of increased my passion more. And then, finally, I started reading the works of people like Dr. Jonathan Brown, Dr. Mustafa Alami, and I realized the dearth of resources in English. And I realized that, look, there's so much in Arabic that if people in the English-speaking world were aware of it, they would kind of reassess their more critical take on hadith. So I may not be producing any groundbreaking research, but the bare minimum that I can do is take that knowledge that I got from my teachers or take that knowledge that's available in the Muslim world and kind of translate it, transfer it into a more modern Western English academic idiom. So, and I, I found that, I, 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 first of all, it's kind of like the lack of uh, scholarship uh, in the field, at least in the West. I'm not saying lack completely. There are many young scholars, mashallah, in different institutes, um, online forums, people who are studying. There are many well-ground young scholars of hadith, and I'm very um, optimistic about the future of the field of hadith. Uh, but I felt that, you know what, why not contribute to it? Because, um, like I said, I did have some exposure to fiqh as well, you know, if that while I was studying. But my heart always would go back to the field of hadith because of it's a very, it's something that fascinates me. History in general fascinates me, but the field of hadith in particular, but more so because of a lack of scholarship in the English-speaking world. I thought, why not pursue something where 
hopefully I can fill a void or I can contribute as opposed to just adding just another voice to a cacophony of disputing voices on an issue of fiqh or an issue of theology. All right. And for for lay people, let me ask this first, for lay people who are interested in getting to learn more about hadith in a, I guess, easy to read um, English book, what would you suggest? Or if there's a lecture series or... Uh, maybe some online class. What would you suggest for lay people? Um, it depends because I generally um, advise people to pick up Dr. Jonathan Brown's book, Hadith. But he himself acknowledges, look, the book was written for a general audience, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim. So some people may find his objective um, academic approach a bit bitter, a bit too bland, a bit uh, detached. So um, if a person's uh, uh, um, uh, skeptical or the person's looking for something quote-unquote objective, then yeah, I would suggest um, uh, the book of uh, Dr. Jonathan Brown. But if the person's looking for more a Muslim perspective on it, uh, I would suggest Dr. Mustafa Al-Azami's works. Um, this is, uh, his works are definitely um, useful. But I guess it depends on what we mean by people who are interested in hadith. One is the text of hadith. If I'm interested to kind of um, expose myself to the Messenger of Allah and read and practice on his words, then yeah, then we can open up books like Riyadh al-Salihin, Sahih al-Bukhari, Mishkat al-Masabih. There are a number of works that I can read just so I can acquaint myself with the Prophet But if I want a more deeper understanding of the history, the development, the terminologies, then yeah, um, I would suggest Dr. Musafa Aldami's works are definitely a good start. Um, Dr. Uh, Hashim Kamali, um, his um, works are also um, useful. Uh, who else? Um, Dr. Zubair Siddiqui, his books are good. But the reason I really uh, suggest Dr. Brown's book on hadith is because it's very comprehensive and it it addresses other competing methodologies of hadith, meaning how did the Mu'tazila, how did the Shia also approach hadith. He also goes into modern debates surrounding hadith. So if somebody wants an exhaustive take on it, it's definitely good. But again, if somebody wants something more uh, from a Muslim traditional approach, uh, that is a good starting point. Okay, and for students of knowledge or students enrolled in graduate school and secular universities who are somewhat maybe interested in this field or, um, you know, they want to maybe um, have a deeper understanding of it. Uh, I guess they could also look at... In all honesty, the field of hadith, like all other Islamic disciplines, can never be fully appreciated or understood without the guidance of a teacher. So you can only do so much self-study in order to fully appreciate the field of hadith, the field of ilm al-rijal, on a more advanced level, you need to find a qualified scholar in person, ideally, or online, if that's your only available option, who can teach you and guide you through the different steps. Um, Depending on the person's level, whether you're um, a beginner, whether you're an intermediate level, or whether you're an advanced student, or a highly advanced student, student, there are different uh, types of books to read. Um, like I said, that's a more lengthy conversation we can have about what's the sulam, what's the kind of the ladder, the gradual progress a student can uh, go through in order to, you know, go from a very novice stage to a developed, advanced stage of hadith. You know, beginning with 
basic mustalah books like Nuzhat al-Nadhar or Muqaddamat al-Salah, then moving on more to the early su'alat works, the ilal works, doing takhrij. So yeah, it, it's, it's a very vast uh, study that would require years of, uh, of um, engagement. But I would say you need a teacher and a lot of dedication. And that's why there are programs which are dedicated to hadith, whether you're studying in Jamia Islamiyah in Medina, whether you're studying in Dilban, whether you're studying in Azhar, whether you're studying in Morocco, or whether you're studying here in America. That's the whole idea of having guided study so that Imam Nawawi says it so beautifully. He says, مُذَاكَرَةُ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ خَيْرٌ مِنْ قِرَاءَةِ كُتُبٍ that if a person is able to have a discussion with the people of knowledge, just for a moment, that's more beneficial in the long run for the development and the progress of a student than him spending hours buried in the books independently studying. Okay. And before concluding, I just wanted to ask, do you have any projects? I mean, you did mention several projects throughout the podcast, but because it's such a long podcast, perhaps you want to... Uh, mention them again, but any projects you have currently in the pipeline? Uh, so I got a few things coming up soon, inshallah. I have an article, hopefully, that should be published soon on Yaqeen about uh, problematic hadiths, about how do we deal with problematic hadiths that should be published on Yaqeen Institute's website soon, maybe in a month or so. I got um, a few other articles. I got an article on very very uh, specific topic the chapter headings of sahih muslim were they authored by imam muslim or not i got an article uh, on that subject hopefully coming out soon uh, i'm writing a review of the recent manuscript of sahih al-bukhari that was uh, located in istanbul the sahih al-bukhari manuscript i kind of alluded to earlier those are some articles uh, i got one coming out on the height of adam alayhi salam uh, the 60 cubits. I got another article on uh, a review of a uh, of a dissertation on the life of Imam Tahawi, uh, his uh, legal theory. Those are just some articles that hopefully should be out over the next few months. Um, in terms of larger works, like I said, I have uh, a book which I hope to publish before the year ends on the historicity of hadith. A lot of what we've discussed today um, over the podcast, um, uh, a lot of the material is covered in my book, inshallah, which I hope to uh, publish before the end of the year. I got a translation uh, of uh, coming out after Ramadan. It's a translation of uh, Dr. Mustafa Al-Azami's Introduction to Sahih Al-Bukhari. Uh, it will be published by Turath, um, Turath Publishers in UK. Uh, I finished it quite early on sometime last year, but uh, it's been going through the process of publication, and we hope to have it out uh, after Ramadan. Um, besides that, I got an, uh, my master's thesis, which I wrote about two years ago. Um, I plan on making that into uh, a journal entry, inshallah, and hope to have that submitted. Um, yeah, these are just a few things I'm busy with in terms of literary works, things I'm writing. But besides that, um, I am teaching at Qalam Institute that keeps me preoccupied, you know, teaching books, the Kutub al-Sitta, teaching some books on fiqh, Mukhtasar al-Quduri, Rad al-Muhtar. Yeah, so it just keeps uh, it keeps you busy, so uh, doing that. And yeah, local masjid work, you know, Khafirazan, yeah, everybody <laughs> has their community work as well. So that's those are a few things that keep me 
preoccupied daily. Uh, yeah. Very good, very good. And uh, I think anyone listening to this podcast who had the, you know, the, the the opportunity to listen to you speak, I think is is very, very much looking forward to your book. And um, I wish you all the best. And I want to thank you so much for giving so many hours uh, in, in helping in, in, in this podcast. I mean, there's so much information that that, that I needed uh, out there and you helped you helped very, very much. In doing that, and again, thank you so much for the time you've given and the excellent discussion you've given. Yeah, it, it, was, it was more of a conversation. This was no uh, teaching. or It was just basically us going over some points. If I said anything right, it's definitely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anything wrong definitely is from myself and from shaitan. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me if I've said anything wrong or offensive. And again... Um, I'm just another brother interested in the field of hadith. I'm not uh, an expert or a scholar. I just happen to have interest in this, and I hope to have further discussions with other people who are interested, inshallah. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. And for, for uh, listeners uh, who might be uh, wondering, Qalam is an institute in Texas um, uh, in which uh, Mufti Muntasir teaches. It's an, um, a, a traditional Islamic seminary. I don't know, Mufti Muntasir, if you want to talk more about that. But um, he's a teacher there. and. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a seminary here in Dallas, Texas, founded by uh, Sheikh Abdul Nasir uh, Jangda. Um, it's it's a very interesting um, uh, curriculum that we have here. It's the Dars Nilvami course that you generally find in uh, the subcontinent or traditional Darul Ulums, but we've modified it, made it an accelerated program for adults. You know, generally, if you look at the institutions of learning Darul Ulums, there are generally younger students, people who are like either 12 or 13. We make sure that the students who come are at least 18 years old, so they're matured and they're able to grasp these concepts better. So a more six or seven year program We've uh, kind of condensed it to a four or five year program and it's more catered to a Western audience. So we begin with the entire year specialized in Arabic and then you go through the fundamental uh, books, uh, the seminary books on fiqh usul, and then you go do more advanced books such as Hidayah of Al-Marghinani, Mishkat Musabih. Then you do the six books, we do the six books of Hadith where you get ijazah for that, and then you have a year of research where you have to submit your um, uh, thesis, you have to answer questions. So yeah, again, it's, um, it's uh, we're very optimistic, and we hope that the program can produce uh, scholars, um, both male and female scholars, for the upcoming generation who can kind of uplift the deen of Islam and inshallah make it relevant and contextualize it for our current circumstances. Inshallah. Thank you once again and thank you for all the people who submitted their questions. I think we went through all of them. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you again. Take care. Goodbye.